Onassis Foundation and Movement Radio present The Archipelago, a podcast series that follows ideas erupting from the abyss of human activity. Hosted by Yanis Orestis Papadimitriou. is not a solid terrain piling up on its own remains. It is the sum of every clouded memory and half-spoken word, forever in flux, always dissolving in the sea of history. It is an anarchic patchwork of thought and creativity, hidden behind grand narratives of actions. The minor overtaken by the major and erased from the record. The archipelago. The fluid territory of emerging thought is the recovered record. In his book Egress on Morning Melancholy and Mark Fisher, Matt Cohoon expands on his former teacher's later ideas, tragically interrupted by his passing in January 2017. He would later add to this corpus by editing and introducing Mark Fisher's final lectures, published under the title Post-Capitalist Desire. In his later days, he moved from his initial diagnosis of a standstill in political and cultural imagination that he termed capitalist realism, towards seeking a way out through a project he outlined as Acid Communism. In the following, the first of two conversations with Mark Ohun, we discuss Mark Fisher's trajectory from the experimental counterculture of the CCRU lab in the mid-90s to his pessimistic take on capitalist reality. We also discuss the concept of egress in practice, how Fisher's passing affected his community, which found new potentialities in his writing under the presence of his absence. This is The Archipelago, a weekly show on Movement Radio. I'm Jens Oresua Dimitriou, sound editing by Stefanos Kostadunidis. Matt Cohoon, welcome to the Archipelago. Thanks for having me. So, Mark Fisher has been associated mostly with his term, uh, 10 years old now, if I'm not mistaken, capitalist realism. Can you take us through what that means? Yeah, so I think the the most fun, the rudimentary uh, definition of capitalist realism for Mark is our sense that um, the end. Well, his 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 sentence is the end of the world is easier to imagine than the end of capitalism, which I think is his way of saying that we are um, somewhat stuck in a, a lack of imagination and it, this is a kind of ideological lack of imagination that is kind of enforced upon us from um, all directions really oh, yeah. uh, oh, sorry Go no which uh, yeah which keeps us uh, which keeps us stuck uh, and uh, diminishes our sense of the future and diminishes our sense of um, what's possible politically and, and this is a cultural situation or a political situation I think for markets, it's both. Um, I think that how, um, I suppose, primarily it would be political, but I think how that political situation impacts culture um, was, a, was a huge concern for him, and especially how culture can also um, help rectify um, that diminished imagination. Mm-hmm. Can you see a starting point when, uh, when we got into capital re- capitalist realism? Mm, I think that for Mark, at least, I suppose um, he was greatly concerned with a lot of the, um, the I suppose you could call them, uh, well, I was going to say failures, but not so much failures, but perhaps disappointments is a better word for it. Um, the political and cultural disappointments from sort of the mid-20th century, um, probably beginning, following the end of... Um, Uh, not just the, the the counterculture in the U.S., but also various European movements, whether that's um, Autonomia in Italy or um, May 68 in France. Um, 
but I think that it was quite a difficult thing to pinpoint precisely because it's uh, I think capitalism for Mark was was kind of a the result of a, an accumulative process that perhaps began in the mid 20th century but we didn't really see um, it taking effect on culture and on consciousness until perhaps the the 1990s with the the full um, establishment of neoliberalism so before the 1990s there's a there must have been, I'm guessing, the the last hurrah, in a sense, before capitalist realism. Maybe the last uh, the last imagination that we would have about possible futures. Uh, can you can you think what that might be? Um, I suppose in some ways it's quite literal that we can. I guess we can pick various different dates. We could pick the the collapse of the Soviet Union at the end of 1991. Um, we could pick the. Uh, Um, the, the the failure of various um, trade unionist movements um, in the West. Um, we could pick even more cultural moments, like perhaps the. Uh, um, I think, at least, especially for Mark, the sort of Britpop moment um, in the '90s was a was this kind of instance where a lot of um, the the spirit of the counterculture of the '60s came back, but totally hollowed out of its politics so the likes of oasis and um the the young british artists movements that the, the whole rural britannia thing this kind of hollow imperialism that kind of reared its head um i think was a huge impact on mark's thinking at least in a local level um but i think that following you know the collapse of the berlin wall not to say that any of these things were uh necessarily negative but they certainly seem to signify the ultimate you know success of capitalism and the closure of other political potentials and i think the trickle down of um how the the closure of those moments led to um a kind of reification of um cultural modes uh is uh i mean it's been written about by more people than mark fisher but um I think what could be done with that in the future, especially in the now, um, and how we are supposed to think about our present situation in relation to those failures and disappointments um, remains a very much open question. Mm-hmm. So it's in this, uh, let's say, cultural desert, or maybe a desert of imaginations in a sense, that uh, Mark starts being a part of the CCRU in, uh, in the mid-90s. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? What was it exactly, and what is its legacy? Yes, the the CCRU was the, the Cybernetic Culture Research Unit that um, I think started started at the University of Warwick in the UK. Um, it was uh, a combination of um, uh, at that time the Continental Philosophy Department at Warwick um, uh, uh, included on its faculty the now very infamous Nick Land. And he was joined by um, Sadie Plant, who was a, an also a senior lecturer, uh, I think, at the University of Birmingham. And uh, in Birmingham, Sadie Plant ran a, um, a sort of cultural research unit called SWITCH. And when Sadie Plant moved to Warwick, a number of her students followed her, one of which was uh, including Mark Fisher. And when they set up shop in Warwick, In the, the mid to the late 90s, um, they started a new venture called the CCIU, um, combining, you know, taking um, Sadie's interest in uh, a different kind of, I suppose it was, an, in one sense, it was an academic research group, but um, it wasn't uh, the kind of collective that sought to just write academic papers and get published in journals. It was a, um, if it could be called a sort of a cultural studies department it was it was a department that wanted to produce culture as much as study it um so the ccru as it later became known was that this kind of a experiment in producing as well as analyzing cyber culture could, could we, and, oh, um, sorry no go ahead no I, i was thinking could we actually understand the ccru as a um, a late form of counterculture in a sense yeah i think so yeah um I mean, Sadie Plant's first book, I think it was her first book, was called um, The Most Radical Gesture, and it was a history of the Situationists. Um, and I think 
her influence in that regard, or the influence of the Situationists from the the, the 50s to 70s, I suppose that's a, it's a long movement, but um, her interest in that kind of artistic and political practice and how that could, um, yeah, take shape online um, was, uh, yeah, really uh, a significant um, uh, interest for everybody. And I think, yeah, trying to produce another kind of counterculture was, was certainly the aim. Um, I think, I mean, they were very much successful in that regard. And I think that their legacy has become more and more known as the years have gone by. Um, I think the, the publisher Urbanomic published their collected writings just a couple of years ago, which had previously only been online um, in a sort of physical book form. I think that's done a great deal to really boost um, their reputation and their legacy long after they uh, uh, collapsed, I think, in 2003. Um, but I think also, that I think the interest that people have now with, around the CCIU is perhaps around the fact that that kind of mode of cultural production doesn't really feel possible anymore, um, whether that's within, a, within a, an institution like a university or online more generally. Um, and I think, in a way, that's uh, a further, um, you know, example of that kind of disappointment that we're now sort of dealing with culturally. Um, not to say that people aren't still creating new things, but um, the way that the CCIU were able to uh, exploit the institutions they were part of and um, uh, remain fugitive to being captured by platforms and things um, is something that it's yeah, probably impossible to do these days unless you were a, a lot more technically savvy than perhaps they were at the time with their quite rudimentary websites. But uh, uh, yeah, they had a, it had a big impact. Yeah, but but maybe could it be? Could we say that the way that the CRU, CCRU ended uh, was actually what started? Uh, first of all, how did it end? If you'd like to, to take us through it, but the way it ended. Could we say that was what started Mark uh, Mark's thought on what would end up uh, as the as the concept of capitalist realism? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think so. I think it was um, from. I think there's some writings that Mark had on his um, his K-punk blog that he became uh, initially quite famous for, where he said that um, he started that blog as a way to try and carry on with this momentum that. Um, had sort of faltered after um, faltered at the university, um, but which many of them, as sort of individual nodes, former members of the CCIU, all had their um, interest to carry on, and they all kind of continued as um, sort of spread out and continued doing their own things. And um, yeah, I think absolutely that um, Mark's explorations of um, continued explorations of cyberspace. Um, It's and the, the diminishing possibilities, maybe, um, but also the new possibilities that kind of came up around each time um, with each new sort of technological development. Um, yeah, he kept abreast of all of them. Uh, it it sounds though like when the when the CCRU was rediscovered and there was interest in the writings, uh, it's kind of ironic I think that uh, most people came to it from uh, from an academic point of view in a sense by reading uh, these people who participate in it as theorists now, not as producers of culture. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, it's really bizarre. Um, I think that. Um, though, though saying that, I think that that's one thing that kind of gets lost now. Um, maybe in terms of um, how people appreciate what was going on later on. I mean, when, when, when Mark died in 2017, he was uh, lecturing at Goldsmiths University in, uh, in London, um, where I was a student at the time. Um, and it's worth noting that despite that university being sort of very much afflicted by, I think, what is generally referred to as the neoliberalization of... Um, university institutions, um, the majority of his students at that time, especially at a postgraduate level, weren't academics. They might have been at that kind of um, level of research, but most of them were practitioners and artists and designers. And that was generally who Mark taught. Um, he taught practitioners more than academics. And it's strange that that reputation, both for the CCIU and I think Mark himself, Um, has become yeah more theoretically focused since his death. 
mm-hmm. um, as if that focus has kind of been lost somehow. And it's uh, it's been strange to witness, that's for sure. Yeah, over the the next decade after the CRU dissolved, um, Mark was actually, let's say, exchanging, talking to some people, some other theorists, like Kojo Esun, Steve Goodman, or um, uh, Simon Reynolds, um, who didn't exactly write about the same things, but, you know, they, they approached some different aspects of... Uh, the the present cultural moment and the possibilities that we could get right uh steve goodman maybe did a bit more through his music not as uh, as a theorist because he has concentrated that much on sonic warfare um but what i was what i'm i uh, don't know about this is that uh, why did these people find uh, music as the best entry point in the in the 2000s to explain the cultural situation back then yeah i think that's a really interesting question um I think it's worth noting that Steve Gooden was also a member of the CCIU. Uh, Kurt Jewishen was also around at that time that he was, uh, I think they met through cyberspace. I think Kojo was initially drawn to the CCIU's writings and then maintained friendships after that. And yes, yeah, Simon Reynolds was a sort of a later on. A, um, he, Simon, yeah, I think Simon's written a few times about how he'd, uh, he was sort of a very big name in the music press at that time, became aware of Mark's more cultural um, uh, activities in his various uh, bands. I think his band Degeneration was, uh, was profiled by Simon quite early on, and then they became friends. But I think, yeah, the um, I think Kojo Eshin put it best. I think in um, a lecture that he gave not long after Mark had died. Um, it may have even been in his uh, initial memorial lecture to Mark that was a, a year after Mark's death, where he said something like. Uh, people that write about music um, and that think about music very seriously, almost, you know, not, not just academically, but philosophically in a kind of um, uh, more general sense, are people that are attuned to the kind of time signature of their moment. Um, and I think that that's certainly true of um, uh Steve Goodman's work, especially, yeah, whether that's his academic work in Sonic Warfare of seeing um, how sound is uh, um, uh, deployed almost geopolitically, especially sort of after the the the, the start of the war on terror. Um, but for Mark, I think that um, that ran through his writings a lot. That he was never a case of just analysing music as a as a form, but analysing what. And considering and and and, uh, and extending the possibilities of what music could do, um, not just aesthetically and culturally, but but politically. Mm-hmm. And I think um, vice versa as well. I think he was. Uh, I think that that's one thing that he he, he wrote about a few times, which is that often uh, culture, but specifically music culture, um, has often prefigured the um, political changes that later. Um, uh, become more dominant uh, in in the mainstream. I think Mark would use the example of um, uh, black entertainers in the US in the sort of uh, late 40s, 1950s, um, kind of prior to the civil rights movement. The most prominent um, uh, black personalities in American life were musicians. As if to say that, in a way, it was um, it was it was it was black culture and black music that prefigured. Um, the normalization of black politics and the black radical tradition. Um, and I think that Mark was really interested in how culture could really pave the way for political change in that regard. Mm-hmm. We'll get back to that uh, later because it's one of the most interesting uh, parts of Mark's thought, I think. Uh, but I yeah. want to ask you this, in the 2000s, the too many ideas that we can associate with this group of thinkers that I mentioned uh, is first that the the white rock tradition, as uh, Mark called it in one of his texts, um, had reached its limit and it was rehashing itself. Uh, and the second is the idea introduced by Simon Reynolds of the hardcore continuum. Uh, so let's start with the first, uh, the idea of uh, this white rock tradition rehashing itself. Uh, how is this related to the concept of ontology as uh, Mark used uh, Derrida's t- uh, term? Yeah, um, ontology is a tricky phrase. I think it's been sort of used and abused a great deal, which probably has something to do with 
yeah, Mark taking it from Derrida and turning it into something quite distinct, despite sort of sharing a um, uh, a context and uh, an interest, that, uh, emphasizing the cultural elements, perhaps, where whereas Derrida was more focused on the political. Um, but I think that in terms of the um, uh, rock music for Mark, I think there was the sense that, um, I mean, this is something that I remember feeling quite explicitly in the mid-2000s, where um, uh, there was the, I'm I'm from East Yorkshire originally, which is uh, about an hour away from where the Arctic Monkeys formed. Um, And at that time, they were, before they even became famous, they were the band that everybody was talking about. And if you hadn't heard of, or at least listened to the Arctic Monkeys, you weren't cool. You, it was it, they were they were everywhere, and they, they were so underground. And I remember at the very same time, uh, around that same time, hearing um, the first burial record that was kind of coming from a very similar sort of underground space, um, and was kind of reaching similar kinds of critical acclaim, but never quite the same amount. Um, and I think. Mark, uh, the burial being released on Steve Goodman's Hyperdub label, and Mark was very close to the development of that music and, and was, a, as a, was a very early champion of that sound. Um, I think that the, the how those two very different styles, um, one that was quite affirmative in its retroism, and another that was that feel very much haunted by it, quite literally, um, how those two things came together and, and sort of orbited each other was this really particular and quite unusual cultural moment. One which saw, um, on the one hand, uh, this, I think it reflected a lot of the political difficulties that were going on around England at that time. Um, I don't think that, I don't know if Mark wrote about the the geographic significance of these things very much, but I think the fact that um, the Arctic Monkeys were a band from the north of England that had been sort of very much deprived industrially and was a, um, politically, as a as a kind of there was d- devoid of any sort of class consciousness, um, and uh, when most of the that, that 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 part of the world felt very much lost and forgotten and neglected, um, following a kind of um, a previously you know cool cultural moment where to be in a northern rock band was. Uh, the thing to be, and, and Mark was a big fan of a lot of those bands, at least in the in, in the sort of the eighties. But I think the issue for him with the Arctic Monkeys was that they they removed the kind of um, uh, the post punk imperative that I think Mark um, that um, Simon Reynolds um, titled uh, n- named one of his books after, which is "Rip It Up and Start Again." And the Arctic Monkeys were kind of like a post punk band that, um, or a pop punk band, maybe that had sort of forgotten that imperative. There was, this was no ripping it up. Whereas Burial, on the one hand, was very much ripping up in, in a very sort of, as, as part of a, of a wider musical tradition of sampling whatever else, was ripping up the culture around him, but producing something that, whilst it was very, it sounded very much new, it was nonetheless haunted by a kind of poverty of experience. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the, the, the songs like um, Nightbus, uh, and uh, you know t- titles of, of burial songs like Nightbus um, in McDonald's. McDonald's, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, things that you know that, that they they speak to quite mundane, but also kind of melancholic um, experiences, inner city experiences that will be familiar to anybody. Um, but they, you know, they they don't try to elevate themselves out of their situation. They kind of just linger in this strangeness and kind of try to exacerbate the eeriness of the mundane this dreamlike state um, (laughs) sorry this dreamlike state in a sense (laughs) yes yeah yeah and i think that that was you know it's i think that was really important to to mark and his quite gothic sensibilities that you know there's there is there is horror and weirdness in the mundane um and the those those gaps and those those the, the strangeness that we can find in these you know, non-spaces like like McDonald's or like the night bus. Um, are th- those are the, the spaces where these are, where the new can come from, where we can imagine ways out of um, the present. Um, and I think that you know that for in a lot of ways, the north of England and a lot of especially um, yeah um, 
white rock bands especially had forgotten that forgotten that was even possible That brings me actually to my second uh, question about the the hardcore continuum. There was this idea that Simon Reynolds had, uh, where he noticed the uh, different uh, uh, transformations of uh, electronic music from the early '90s, that pretty much all uh, evolved into one another in a communitarian sense. If I'm getting it right, uh, and they shared some similar traits. And by the end of the of 2010, uh, they had pronounced it dead, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. Uh, how, how did it die? <laughs> yeah. Um, Because in a sense, sorry, uh, let, let me add this: that burial is like is almost like a uh, not not a nostalgic. I, I know that the nostalgic would be the worst possible way to frame this, but it sounds like a faded memory of this uh, hardcore continuum. Sometimes. Yes. No. Totally. I think that's part of the the tension too. It's it's um the uh, one of my favorite writers. Um, is a is an American literary critic called uh, Leslie Fiedler, but he has this argument that um, nostalgia is kind of the opposite of psychedelia, um, that they kind of exist in tandem, and I think that in a lot of uh, um, you know the, the the opposite of I think for him it's the opposite of remembering is hallucinating, um, and I think that that tension is uh, really gets to the core, I think, of what is going on in that moment, especially with something like burial, uh, like the the the, the 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 experiences that you have in those kind of mundane places. Their opportunities to daydream, I think, is, is is partly what's so important about the kind of psychogeography of that music. Um, and as if to say, you know, despite its melancholy and and, and it has, it certainly is nostalgic, uh, at least in. Um, In a sense that you know, it's it, it's a it's a music that seems to be very much self-aware of what has been lost. But I think that what's evocative about a lot of those soundscapes is that they they there's there's a sense of a positive feedback loop, where that melancholy is nonetheless um, crafted in a way that creates the prime conditions for daydreaming and imagining the new. Um, and I think perhaps 
why the hardcore continuum died, uh, if, if it did die, I suppose that's probably still quite contentious. Um, but I think that in some ways it was maybe an, uh, affirming that, um, that moment. Um, when I think of the, I mean, the death of the hardcore continuum, I think of the, the, the record label, the death of rave, which feels like very similar as much as it's kind of, it's, it's, it's name seems to be mourning something. Um, in, in affirming that, that experience, it kind of allows these, uh, it, it's as if to say that, you know, um, to affirm those periods of reflection that allow for, you know, the, the new to emerge perhaps organically. And I think that especially for, for Mark and, and others around um, uh, the CCIU and the Hyperdub label especially, um, that's remained um, uh, a really um, fruitful and productive, if nonetheless fraught and tense place to exist. Um, mm-hmm. Is and this I think that's... Oh, sorry. No, no, go ahead. No, I was about to ask that uh, Mark's passage from CCRU to capitalist realism coincides perfectly with uh, the new labor years. And I want, to, I want to ask about the association between the two. How did the CCRU experiment w- um, relate, and Mark's later work, relate to the new labor experience? Yeah. Um, I can personally, I feel like I can only comment on that in, in hindsight. I'm, I'm personally a I'm, I'm absolutely a child of the labor years, and I did that. That was the, you know my first sense of political consciousness was uh, Tony Blair's the first um, prime minister that I have any memory of, um, and I think that from that perspective, as a kind of millennial reflecting on that moment, um, Marx's critiques nevertheless resonate, and his later critiques would be that you know the. Uh, the deputy prime minister at that time, John Prescott, who was um, a, a local member of parliament to me from also from Hull, where um, down well where, where I'm from as well, he was known as a for for, for making this declaration that um, we are all middle class now. <laughs> and Mark would later talk about and frequently talk about the the paradox of that notion that um, that rejects the idea of class struggle, um, nevertheless through. A notion of class, like as if to say, the middle class is a is a is a is a is a, is a class position that negates the class experience, mm-hmm. and I think that that's um, at least for, for 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 me personally, that was just the given. There was class consciousness was not something that I ever even heard of until embarrassingly recently, um, because you know, at least since reading Marx's work, so that's probably about you know within the last ten years, capitalist realism was was a book that was you know was written for my generation, I think. Um, and so Marx has a great deal to, to uh, deserves a lot great deal of credit, I think, for for um, informing people of my age at least of what we had missed out on, and not just what we'd missed out on, but I, I suppose what we could what we could still imagine. Um, and and the, the the blinkers that had been placed on us by that kind of new labour moment um, weren't a given, and we shouldn't take them for granted. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that in a lot of ways, it's that um, it, it, it's that same sort of tension with Burial's music, where Burial kind of signals these uh, the the kind of mundanity of place and creates these nevertheless evocative soundscapes out of that. The new labor sort of felt like the political equivalent. It was just this utter mundanity of political imagination that was taken to be wholly reasonable. And I think that in a lot of ways, um, if there's, I can't, I suppose I can't really speak to the transition that was from the CCIU to that moment or, you know, or how the CCIU fit into that is probably this, you know, the disappointment that they must have felt afterwards. And especially with the rise of, you know, what, what, what the internet has become. But I think, the, le- the the importance of that legacy for those of us now is that um, you know the 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 the, the strangeness of um, that that kind of centrism, as it were, in political sense, or 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 that the uh, the retroism of um, of culture uh, is something to take very seriously and to um, 
pick apart. That there are holes in. You know, the, the, I think that the, that's one of the other ways of defining capitalist realism is, is the sense that um, the our understanding of capitalism as a sort of as a system is a very consistent one, when it's actually anything but. And that's a lot more obvious to us now. I think uh, over a decade since the financial crash and and the various different you know economic struggles that have happened around the world, and I suppose that's you know I don't need to to tell you that in Greece. Um, yeah, but, we know, you know it all well. I think yes, yeah. Uh, but you know that's but it's it's I suppose that it's it's um, it's taking those opportunities that can be so harrowing and really depressing. And very melancholic, you know, the the, the sense that uh, the, the I think that's the that's the link between this cultural response and the political response is that as much as we can talk about the the kind of strangeness of the mundane, a lot of this, you know, the the gothic notions of this aren't just aesthetic, but they are truly a kind of you know we live in a mournful time where I think for most people of a certain generation they'll know nothing but political failure mm -hmm. uh, they won't know what political success looks like um but yeah. you know that's that's not to say that the, the 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 response to that um sense of the world has to be you know um nihilistic uh or at least passive and you know inactive those are kind of the ripe conditions for um you know imagining uh, things differently Yeah, and this is what happened, actually. I think uh, Mark started with a pessimistic diagnosis, in a sense, and then slowly he started to articulate a political program for it. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so I, I, I want to ask you this before we go to that. Uh, what, you've, you've written on uh, your book, Egress, on Morning Melancholy and, and Mark Fisher, which stands with, uh, it, it is on, a, on a, the first person, uh, which you declare from the beginning of the book that you want to gradually dissolve. <laughs> Through the yeah. while the book progresses, uh, t take us through your personal relation to Mark Fisher first of all, as a writer, as a teacher, in a sense. Yeah, um, I suppose I didn't. I, did, I mean, I didn't know Mark personally for that long at all. I think I I knew him for just a couple of months before he died, but I was aware of his work for a lot longer than uh, um, for yeah, much longer than that. I think I first started reading the K-Punk blog in the early 2010s um, when I first went to university um, and became like a, tr a, a true fan in the sense that um, when uh, Mark's book Ghosts of My Life came out in 2013, I think, or 2014. Um, and that book was huge for me. Um, I think for a lot of other people that it really captured that, it, 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 you know, it, Capitalist realism uh, was something that I read shortly after that, um, but I kind of recognised in that book, um, you know, Mark was speaking to politically speaking to my kind of generation. That the, the, that book came out in two thousand and nine, and Mark spends a lot of time in that book writing about his college students. And that in two thousand nine, I was also a college student, so there was this sense that Mark was kind of this for for me and for plenty of other people. He was this. He was this guide that was there to, you know, not just take his students um, through the strangeness of, of capitalist realism, of late capitalism, of neoliberalism. Um, but he was sort of, uh, yeah, he was the perfect guide, almost like a kind of um, uh, uh, like guru, I suppose, <laughs> for... Uh, you know, showing not just what we'd missed, but I guess interrogating... Um, how things had ended up as they were. Because I think that there was a certain... One of the problems, I think, that comes from this sense of capitalist realism or the end of history or the new labour years is that I think for a lot of younger people in the in the start of the 21st century, there's a sense that you can be a know-it-all. You can go online and you can find out anything. And I think for me, personally, that was kind of what was so exciting about online culture at that time. Um, I could literally download and listen to any music I ever wanted and... and spend most of my time doing that it was completely um, open to possibility <laughs> yeah yeah and, and you can you can just absorb that culture like a sponge um and whilst that you know that but but i think that what mark's writing did in a way was not just sort of take that for granted and sort of develop an arrogance from that level of accessibility but actually understand you know that as much as this feels like a sort of an embarrassment of riches um uh as far as culture is concerned 
um, there's a certain sense of progression that has been lost, and there's a certain sense of uh, the new, uh, and a certain sense of, I guess, experimentation um, that, you know, Mark encouraged people to really interrogate and consider um, not just the culture of their moment, but why that, the why, why that was be, why that kind of culture was being produced now. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, as, as I said before, this, this, the, the thing that Kojo Eshin once said that, you know, to consider music, to write about music is to, is to be in touch with the time signature of your moment. And that's true politically and culturally. And so I think it was Mark that was kind of, you know, he was, he was a conductor in that sense. He, 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 he allowed us to get on that time signature. Mm-hmm. Um, and you said, and, oh. Sorry. No yeah, uh, and just yeah, play along. Anyway, I guess that's the the, the the to cut a longer, a very long story short is that from um, from that kind of relationship to Mark's work, um, I initially studied photography, and uh, but wanted to get better at writing and wanted to be a student of his, been a reader, and I wanted to you know have a a better sense of what kind of stuff he was working on. So yeah, I went to um, study with Mark uh, and Kojo especially um, uh, in late 2016. Mm-hmm. Um, and when then they were starting their their master's program, I think. Yes. Yeah. Well, they they had a yeah. This yeah. I, I mean, this was part of the. Um, I, I was kind of aware of what they were doing for quite a while because I'd, I'd applied to the university uh, a few years early. I had uh, you know it wasn't an easy decision financially for me to make personally, so I was very aware that I wanted to get in there and at least so I could plan ahead. And I initially applied to study on um, Mark and Kojo's joint. Um, postgraduate degree that was called Oral and Visual Cultures, and by the time that um, my enrolment finally came around, that that course has unfortunately been um, dissolved and was um, uh, merged into a wider degree in contemporary art theory, uh, which, as far as I'm concerned, it was it was less it sounded less cool, but they were still teaching on it, so. Um, Yeah, went ahead with it anyway, and uh, yeah, unfortunately, that was a that, that was a sort of new venture for them. Both Mark and Kojo started new courses. Um, uh, Mark's course is, uh, you know, we, I suppose we'll talk about that later. But he he started a course called um, Post Capitalist Desire, which explored a lot of what we talked about already, and was a an attempt to update his thinking around capitalist realism. But unfortunately, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, in in January 2017, at the start of a new term, uh, Mark unfortunately passed away. Um, so I suppose egress, in a way, was an attempt to um, kind of ruminate on that experience because it dominated the entire year, the academic year after that. There was there wasn't really a sense of writing about anything else. It was initially my master's dissertation um, because it just yeah it, 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 it took over life completely. But it, it felt so you know that dealing with that moment on a very personal level, nevertheless, had a great it really it, it, it impacted the sense of um in a, on, in a personal sense of how this you know it emotionally really deeply affected everyone that i knew it affected me personally and and, and colleagues and other peers and lecturers and all the rest of it uh, but there I was a to, sense that uh, um, no sorry. sorry no i want to ask you about this actually because you mentioned earlier that uh, the ccru could not be a thing uh, in today's academia Uh, yeah. And I think from uh, I, what I took from your book was uh, what I got from your book was that uh, when Mark passed away, uh, it actually it was like a, a wake up call to what the the environment you lived in uh, was like. It it energized your concepts of uh, academia, uh, and I want to know yeah, the exact absolutely. way in this ha- in this happened. Yeah, well, I think that it it was this diffuse sense that I think is um, probably a lot clearer to people in hindsight. Um, especially with the, um, the, 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 the considering the Mark, what Mark was teaching at that time, um, but there was this sense that uh, in in capitalist realism, Mark has this. Um, he writes this 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 very enigmatic sentence that just really struck with me, where he says that the one the the thing that is demanded and which is desired and that we need. I mean, I'm very badly quoting here. Um, But the thing that we need to get out of our present situation is a collective subject rather than an individual subject. And I was really taken by that idea. And following Mark's death, that just became, rather than that being a kind of um, a political notion to kind of ruminate on and look into the distance sort of about and just, you know, to just think about in a quite abstract sense, 
the stakes of that kind of thinking and what it means to think and act collectively um, became uh, really, really um, poignant and really palpable. Because at that moment, I think, I, I mean, one of the, I think one of the most difficult and probably the the the, the an unspoken um, difficulty that happens when someone that you know commit suicide is that it makes that act in itself very thinkable. Um, and I think that that's, you know, the, 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 I think there's, there's plenty of statistics around this, that to, to be in close proximity to a suicide leads, tend, tends to lead to more suicides. And it's this, because it is this quite existential trauma that someone that you know can do something like that. And that's, you know, it's, that's, that's very, uh, dark thing to bring up i suppose but it, it was quite crucial because it made the fact that none of us could really just go and be by ourselves in this moment it was you know i think that it forced people to be together to to collectively you know think for each other and look after each other um and really make sure physically mentally whatever else everybody was supported and could um you know uh was was dealing with things in in whatever way possible that we could get through it together, and I think that one thing that came out of that moment, the necessity of acting in that way, was that I think a lot of people were sort of slightly bitter. There was a, there was a, a bittersweet sense that we could have treated each other this way beforehand, and why did it take this horrible event to actually make us you know um, relate this way? So I think there was a sense that. And my reason for writing the book, in a way, was was to try and take and understand that moment that was so difficult to understand. Um, it's not just in the context of personally, but also in relation to Mark's work, a work that deals with these kinds of political and cultural traumas and, and disappointments and and failures, mm -hmm. and try and you know figure out how his um, his his life and his death could be made sense of in that moment. And not to just take the easy way out and think that, you know, Mark's death meant that his work had failed. I think that it's been said many times that in the end, you know, that unfortunately, um, it was Mark's depression that was all too personal rather than political um, that, you know, kind of caught up with him. Yeah, but, um, oh, sorry. No, but uh, but I think it, it, it's just, it's, uh, it's you know, the, all of that coming together, the, uh, uh, trying to, you know, not just not just um, show or, or try to explore how um, our small community could deal with that and then come out the other side, but to see if there was a way that we could, you know, carry Mark's work along with us and share that kind of experience in a way to show that, um, you know, this, it, it shouldn't be the kind of, you know, disasters and catastrophes that make us act differently. We, we have the potential to do this without this kind of event. And that's what we need more than anything, I think. And that was, you know, that I think that's that's become a lot easier to swallow and to think about the further we've gone from that kind of moment. Um, but I think it, it certainly triggered something in us at that time within that institution. Uh, uh, and yeah, as you about related to the CCRU question, I think that that that's partly um, it undermined that sense that. Uh, as a postgraduate and at a, at a modern university, the sense of competition, I think, also was quite striking. You know, the, the, you are kind of you know, the, the the job market, academic job market, is pretty brutal. Um, so you're kind of encouraged into the sense of competition. And I think that that kind of event also just undermines all of that kind of rubbish. That you know, that it's not um, that there are there are things far more important than. Um, uh, careerism in academia and if anything it's the opportunities to um, you know really uh, come together and uh, build a foundation that you can carry back into the outer world that's most important I think that that's what we try to do and that's certainly what I try to do with egress mm -hmm. I'm kind of disappointed that we didn't set the, settle this as a three hour interview because I think we'd, we'd, we could get through this easily uh, yes. but <laughs> we're almost running out of time so we'll have to run through the, the last part of the uh, of the interview. Um, okay. I, I want to ask about the political program that uh, Mark left behind, the outline for uh, acid communist, uh, communism and his uh, final lectures that you edited and published uh, recently. Um, so, the, he, Mark had a disdain for the 60s initially, 
and then he started to revise that position. Um, what seems strange to me is that um, when I think of the 60s, I'm thinking of the time of the... And he, had, he also had this, this disdain for the old left, right, that he mentioned uh, uh, in, in on many occasions. Um, so uh, when, when he revisited the 60s, I'm thinking that the 60s were the, the, the point when this idea that he describes in the... This situation that he de- describes in the Vampire Castle started to take shape, in a sense. You know, this... Not anymore practice, not anymore imagining, but mostly victimization and individualism. Uh, how did he revise that position? I think that, um, in a sense, I, I, I mean, I, unfortunately, I think the, the, the true answer to that question is lost. But my sense of it is that I think Mark kind of realized that he was, that there was, he wasn't necessarily against that. The, the 60s he wasn't against that moment um but i think he was he he, he was maybe um the moment that he grew up in as a kind of post-punk kid i think he was born in 1969 um but uh you know he, he's essentially he's, he's coming of age in the late 70s to mid 80s that's his you know teenage years and the culture of that time especially was you know that it was a given that you you disdained hippies um it was you know it's punk and post-punk it's it's kind of a total reaction against that moment but i think that maybe as as, as time went on mark realized that totally reacting against that moment was is kind of not the answer but rather the, the best thing to do is try and synthesize the different strands of political thinking that were going on at that time and I actually was thinking about this last night because um, what I started watching was the new um, Aaron Sorkin movie that's come out on Netflix called The Trial of the Chicago 7, which is this dramatization of um, the 1969 trial of uh, um, uh, various different factions of the leaders of different factions on the left, be that the Black, uh, Black Panthers. Um, uh, I'm not going to remember the different organizations, but um, you know they were all that the, the, these uh, seven or eight men, as it turned out, were um, charged with uh, conspiracy to incite a riot outside the Democratic Convention in Chicago. And there's this great moment in this film where um, these two characters, um, Sasha Baron Cohen, who plays Abby Hoffman, um, and Eddie Redmayne, who plays Tom Hayden, they almost come to. Um, you know, they almost have a physical altercation because neither of them agrees with their own tactics. Um, for for Tom Hayden, it's like he's this he's this old left figure who's all about bureaucracy, all about um, uh, voter registration. It's all about the ballot box. Uh, the revolution can't happen until you know you, you have to you have to vote the revolution into office before you can make any kind of policy change. And he disdains Abby Hoffman's approach, which is kind of sexy. Uh, he's a comedian. He's all about media attention. Provocative, you know, also. In, yeah, um, and I think you can kind of see that their antagonism. Uh, they they almost it, I think that my favorite it's you know it, it, there's, there's probably plenty to, to to pick apart about the film but I think what's really Im- important about it coming out in this moment is that it shows this in the end this this kind of uncomfortable synthesis between these two people that in the end it's revealed that they actually do respect each other whether that's true of real life I don't know but I think that that's kind of where Mark ended up being I think he ended up seeing that. You know, he he was maybe more on the side of Tom Hayden as opposed to Abby Hoffman, but I think he sort of realised that actually, to get you know to to do anything in our present moment, you need both. You need, you know, the, 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 if we talk about a, a sexy media presence, what effectively the Sasha Baron Cohen character is is uh, is reaching into is this sense of a, of a, of a libidinal uh, politics, mm-hmm. um, a politics of desire, um, quite you know, an embodied politics of desire. Mm-hmm. But that nevertheless has to be, you know, combined with um, an understanding of, you know, hard politics. Um, and I think Mark really realised that in the end. And, and I think a major part of his, you know, project was to build a positive project was not just to snipe at both of these positions, to see the, you know, the superficial sexiness and then the, and then the, the boring, dull, grey bureaucrat, but actually see that we need, you know, the, the, the way forwards for any kind of... Um, anti-capitalist or post-capitalist project is their collaboration 
yes the collaboration but the synthesis of the best of these of these different projects <coughs> and i think that's something that's all that's all continuously been a quite um fraught suggestion um even in the sense of you know with a lot of mark's accelerationist writings that deal with in in, in a kind of older sense rather than how that term's understood now but this sense of that you know there are things that um under capitalism that you know capitalism is actually responding to these desires that we have desires for like collectivity and communication um the rise of social media kind of shows that capitalism knows that we we want connectivity and collectivity but it's del it's, it's delivering on these things totally inefficiently so it's not necessarily a question of having to know you know completely rip up the entire capitalist infrastructure, but actually all that could be necessary is a change in management. And in a way that that's, you know, it's taking the sort of the, the, the libidinal nature of capitalism with its kind of managerial systems and showing that actually there's a way to, you know, maneuver these things for public good rather than a profit. And if there's a way that we can figure out to do that, um, which is it's complex, it's most likely cultural as well as political, um, that's you know that's the kind of space that we need to explore, and I think for Mark it was the synthesis of those things, the cultural and the political, um, as these kind of even as spheres, but also maybe as industries, um, that you know we need to try and see the the strengths of those things and what and, and how those industries evolve and respond to our own desires. Once we're sort of attuned with that, we have a much better. Um, uh, we'll have a much better chance of, of, of developing the kinds of future that we want. <laughs> that, uh, unfortunately, I have to leave the, our conversation about the future, the reification of the future that I want to ask you about, and this space that needs to be created for, an all to, uh, for a different conversation, <laughs> uh, because we've run out of time. Matt Cuthun, thank you very much for being at the Velago. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.